that afternoon I got a box shipment of frogs and I was trying not to waste them and of course I tripped and dropped over a hundred frogs oh, no. running all in the lab. I can remember walking down the street saying hello to people and looking at me like right. I was strange. You're right, you know, because right. that's just something we do in the South. Hey everyone, my name is Basam Zahid and welcome to This Meharian Life, the podcast where we interview Meharian students, faculty, administrators, and alumni and showcase our school's diverse contribution to the history of American medicine. Welcome to episode 17. This week, I'm proud to bring you my conversation with the 12th president and CEO of Meharry Medical College, Dr. James E.K. Hildreth. He has earned many accolades throughout his storied career. He graduated from Harvard University, magna cum laude in chemistry, received his PhD from Oxford University with a PhD in immunology as the first African-American Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas in 1982, and obtained his MD from Johns Hopkins in 1987. He began research on HIV and AIDS in 1986, and his work has led to important advancements against the disease. In July 2005, Dr. Hildreth began his first tour in Nashville, bringing his lab to Meharry Medical College and serving as the director of the NIH-funded Center for AIDS Health Disparities Research. His work has culminated with more than 90 scientific articles, 11 patents, and the National Institute of Health Directors Pioneer Award in 2011. He has been elected to the Institute of Medicine, received an honorary doctorate from the University of Arkansas, inducted into the Arkansas Black Hall of Fame, and the Johns Hopkins University Society of Scholars. He currently also serves on the Harvard University Board of Overseers. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hildreth. Thank you for having me. I finally have you on the hot seat. You ready for this? I'm ready. So let's talk about your path through medicine. From the beginning, when did you realize you wanted to be a physician or researcher? So I decided to become a physician when I was 11 years old, after my father passed away. And uh, it was really because we lived in a small town in Arkansas, and we were poor and we were black. And so the honest answer is that my dad didn't get the kind of care that I thought he should have. Now, the truth is there probably wasn't much that could be done for him back at that time, but uh, the fact that there was very little care offered to him was my inspiration for wanting to become a doctor, and, and so that's when it started. I was 11 years old. And can you tell us a little bit more about your parents, who were your mom and your dad? So my mom is Lucy Mae Chitman. She grew up in a small town, rural town in, in Arkansas, and uh, she was the youngest of nine children. And she didn't get to finish school because I think in the eighth grade she had to stop school and, and work to support her family because both my grandmother and my grandfather became ill. And so some of the children in the family had to stop school to work and take mm -hmm. care of the rest of the family. My father, I believe, is from Mississippi, or his family moved from Mississippi to Arkansas. And uh, he didn't finish school either, I don't think. But he worked at the paper mill in Camden. I think that's what made him ill in the first place. Do you think any of the work ethic that you have came from them? Oh, I have no question about it. My mother especially, because my mother uh, made it clear to the seven of us, I'm the youngest of seven children, that uh, working hard, 
you know, being obedient to God and his plans for our life, humility, all of those things would contribute to our success. But the one thing she insisted on was that we all get an education. So, yes, I would say that parents had a big influence on, on all of us, all seven of us. And related to that, what is the most lasting lesson your parents ever taught you? Well, I think the lesson that sticks with me the most is the fact that you can learn something from everybody in every situation that you're in if you're open to learning something from it. Um, so I think for me, whether I have a success or a failure, I try to think about what that means and what lessons can be learned from it. And the same thing with all the people that I meet. I mean, I'm always eager to listen to people. And I think I take, take this approach to my leadership. We all bring a certain set of experiences to the table. And if you're open to learning from them, it can be a really powerful thing. So that, to me, that's been the most lasting lesson mm-hmm. that I, I'm sure I've made use of that over and over again in my life. Well, so your parents weren't physicians, yet you said you, have, you had this desire to become a physician after your father yes. passed away. Yes. Did you have any mentors to guide you along that path? when you were that, around that age? I didn't. Um, so my father passed in 1968 in January. And four months later in April, of course, is when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And Martin Luther King had become sort of a superhero for me. So to lose my father and then in quick succession lose MLK. And all of it appeared to be because of race and racial bias it made me very angry. So I was very angry, uh, <laughs> but my mother worked with me to convert that anger into a, a drive that sticks with me to this very day. And then what happened is at age 13, I started reading books about medicine and medical school. I'd never ex- seen a black doctor. I didn't know that black doctors even existed. So I did what I always did, which is go to the library and read and do as I call it, do my homework. And in a couple of the books that I read or magazines, they ranked the universities in the United States as to how well pre-med students did at those universities. Mm -hmm. And there was one university that was head and shoulders above all the rest in terms of the success of their pre-med students, and that was Harvard. So at age 13, my life's work became getting into Harvard. And, uh, I didn't really have even any guidance in that, except I knew the profile of the students I accepted. So I tried to do those things that I thought would make it possible for me to even be considered. So I did, you know, I did sports. I worked superintendent of the Sunday school, student government. I did lots of things. Um, And just going back, your story is very relatable in the fact that many young people feel anger after a, a parent passes. Yes. And you said your mom helped you channel that. What was her insight, and how did she guide you? Well, my mother would often tell the story that when I was in kindergarten um, or first grade, they administered a, an intelligence test to us wee ones. And she'd tell the story that, uh, I forget the teacher's name, came to see my mother to say, you know, your son has a gift, and if 
he's able to use that gift one day. He might do something really special in the world. So um, let me know what I can do to help you help him because apparently I had done really well in this intelligence test. Mm -hmm. So I think my mother was always acutely aware of the potential that I had. But when this all happened and she saw me crashing, because I was, I mean, I didn't say a word to any, anybody for months after MLK was assassinated. Um, not a single word? Not a word. I was, I can't even describe it to you. It, it was like uh, my whole mind and my whole being was, was sort of wrapped in itself because I couldn't understand how the world could be so cruel. Mm -hmm. um, especially after being brought up in a in the church and believing that you know God was a good God, and so I was I was angry at God. I was angry at the world. I mean, I was just an angry young man. But my mother, uh, even though sometimes I'm sure she thought I wasn't listening, mm -hmm. I was listening, and she would quietly and calmly. And I think that's where, to the extent that I have it, my calm spirit comes from. It's from my mother. Because it seemed that no matter what the situation, she never lost her her cool or her calm demeanor. Um, and I think she was trying to transfer some of that to me. But she convinced me that if I would just take the energy and the emotion and the, I don't know, the force of what I was feeling and redirect it. This is all in the context of having been told that her son mm -hmm. you know, had, had gifts and if you could find a way to direct those. So she was determined not to let me not pursue the dream that I had. Because the dream started when my father died and MLK was assassinated and it all seemed to it kind of fall apart. All seemed to fall apart. I think her her quiet conversations, her quiet encouragements, because um, you know when you're a black kid in those days aspiring to do something that to that point had only been done by white men. Some people didn't even take it seriously, right? They were saying, you need to go to vocation school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, think about being a carpenter. I had four uncles who were tradesmen. And after my father died, they taught me all that they did. And so now I have the ability to do anything that's related to a trade, carpentry, plumbing, electricity. I can do it all. Um, so there are a lot of folks who encouraged me to do that. But my mother would never let that sink in, she was kind of my, the moat right, right. to keep all that away from me. And uh, there was just a connection that developed as a result of all that between myself and my mother that was really powerful. So I think that's the way that all occurred. And to some extent, I know for a fact that if it hadn't been for her or if I'd lived in a different place when that happened. Because in big towns and big cities, as you know, there was rioting and violence and looting and all this. Mm -hmm. But being in Camden, Arkansas, there was no opportunity for any of that. So Yeah. And did you have any siblings? Six siblings. I'm the youngest of seven. What are your siblings up to now? So my oldest sibling, Dorothy, died of brain cancer when I was at Oxford as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother Charles, who's the second oldest, still lives in Camden. He's retired. He worked at the paper mill, the same place my father worked. I think he worked his way up into like a management position. He was there for, I think, more than 20 years. 
the third oldest, Earl Dean, lives in Los Angeles. She's retired. And she's taking care of Mary, number four or five. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Mary had a brainstem stroke about 12 years ago. And usually brainstem tr- strokes are fatal. I mean, people don't really survive them. But she did. And so now Errol Dean is actually taking care of Mary. And Ellen, who's the closest uh, to me, she's a year and a half older than me. She worked in public education, K through 12. She was a principal for a long time, and she's now retired. So that's, those are my siblings. So you were valedictorian of your high school class, graduated magna cum laude in, in chemistry from Harvard, received your PhD from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. You alluded to the fact that your mom was one of the guiding forces to your success, Mm -hmm. but where did the internal confidence, where was that generated to be able to meet your goal every time you set one? Well, to me, that first idea I had of going to Harvard, which was really in the context of where I was at the time, one might say was an impossible dream to dream because... And I later found out that prior to myself, there had only been one other African-American from Arkansas who went to Harvard. So, you know, you dream this dream. I did the homework to understand what was necessary. I did the work. And then the... What was the homework? Because this I, is pre-internet days, so you have Yeah, to... so I, I, I read almost every book there was in the public library. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would go there and spend hours reading... And so there were books about uh, Ivy League schools, and they had magazines where they ranked the school. I mean, I, I read whatever I could read. And I knew about some famous people who had gone to Harvard, and and I studied some of their, you know, some of the things they'd done in their lives and all this. So um, I knew that in order to be attractive to an Ivy League school, you got to do really well in school first mm-hmm. of all. You got to do well on the on the standardized test SAT. But you also have to show that you are a well-rounded individual who can achieve in other aspects of That's why I did all those other things. I mean, I had uh, two jobs, I think. I was superintendent of the Sunday school, which was great, because after that, I tell people that when you're a 16-year-old who is superintendent of the Sunday school, even if it's a small church, uh, I was terrified at first. But by the time I was done, I could stand up and speak to anybody at any time about anything. So in retrospect, I think that contributed significantly too. But I just did all these things, student government. I mean, um, I was an Eagle Scout. I went to Philmont Scout Ranch. Whatever I could do to, you know, and to my mother's uh, credit, sometimes the resources weren't there to do some of these things, but she sacrificed to make them possible. Um, so I was very cognizant of the fact that my mother was making these Sacrifices, and that also added to my determination that I'm going to make things mm-hmm. work. And so that April afternoon, when the acceptance letter came, as far as I'm concerned, that was the most significant day in my whole life. Because after that, my confidence was through the roof. I mean, okay, let's let's do this. Yeah, whatever you put in front of right? me, I got. So after that, I was ready to fly. That's awesome. And after Oxford, you went to medical school at John Hopkins, yes, one of the premier medical research institutions. Mm-hmm. You became a tenured professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences. 
you became director of an AIDS research center. So, you know, the trajectory is continuously upwards. Yet you decided to do something unusual. You decided to bring your lab and your work to a small HBCU south of Jefferson Street in North Nashville. <laughs> Why? Well, th- there are a number of reasons. Well, the first, first of all, you know, being at Johns Hopkins Medical School as a researcher, uh, it can't get much better than that because it's such a fantastic place to do biomedical research. So I was very content um, in my work there. I had risen to a level of being a tenured full professor in basic sciences. No other African-American had ever done that in the 125-year history of the school. Um, And I think I was well-respected by my colleagues. So things were pretty good. My wife had finished law school at the University of Maryland. uh, And that's a whole other historic sort of story there. Um, And she was, I think, content there. But when that phone call came on, I don't know, one late summer day in 2004, um, be quite honest with you, I knew about Meharry, but not very much. Um, and I was so excited about my work at that time that I just said no almost immediately, that I, I can't leave. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Dr. Grandison who called me. So a month later, Dr. Grandison called me again. We had almost exactly the same conversation. And once again, my answer was no. But as I've done my whole life, I did some homework. I go back and, you know, I tell my students all the time, there should only be one time when someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, if the answer is no. The next time someone asks you that question, you know, you need to know what the answer is. So following my own rule, I went, did homework on Meharry, and was just astounded by some of the things that I read about the school. And also I think that somebody actually called my wife which was a dirty trick. <laughs> and so my wife <laughs> Good to know. My, my wife convinced me that we should go down for a visit. So in December of uh, 2004, we came down for a visit, and I gave a talk. And during the two days that we were here, something fairly special happened. I had been at some of the best and most prestigious institutions in the world, but I had never experienced the kind of spirit that I felt here and commitment to a mission, it was, you could actually, I mean, you could actually feel it, mm-hmm. right? The students uh, expressed it, the faculty and the staff did, and I'd never experienced it before. Um, and so I decided to give a serious consideration. Now, the story that most people don't know is that when I got back to uh, Baltimore and Johns Hopkins, I was wrestling with this idea um, and at the time, I was singing in the male chorus at the church. And my seat in the male chorus was right next to the pulpit where the pastor would stand and give his, his sermon. So we sang the sermonic selection. We sat down. Dr. Reverend Green gets up. He reads the scripture. And he looks at me. Mm-hmm. I've not had any communications with him at all about any of this. He says, our subject today is... He turns and looks at me and it says, it's time to get out of the boat. (laughs) (laughs) And it's one of those things where it's hard to describe the moment Mm -hmm. because I knew that the good Lord had put that message in his spirit for me. And it also happens to be, and I'm not making this up, Martin Luther King's birthday. Wow. So I said, okay, God, I get it. I'm going. Mm-hmm. 
So literally the next day, I wrote the letter to my chair resigning from uh, Johns Hopkins. And uh, that was interesting because even though I was a full professor and associate dean and other things, my lab was not renovated. Everybody else's lab in the department had been renovated. My office was as big as this table. I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Uh, when people came to see me, I had to literally meet with them through the door. They would sit outside my office. I would sit in my office. We would talk through the doorway. That's okay. So there were a lot of other things that were happening. So I gave them the letter, I think at like 9 o'clock in the morning or something. By 3 o'clock, miraculously, <laughs> he and the dean had found a way to renovate my lab, <laughs> to give me a new office, uh, to expand the P3 facility I used for my research, all in the span of, of six to seven hours. And, you know, some people actually go out and get an offer to better their position at their home institution. And I just explained to the dean and to my chair, uh, I'm really sorry, but you've had, I don't know, seven, eight years to do right by me, and I'm not going to do this to Meharry. I'm really committed. I'm excited about it. And so I, I, I told him no. Um, but it was really amazing to me that in the span of just six or seven hours, all these issues that have been issues for a long, long time right. uh, were solved. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people there who respected me and uh, the way that I tried to do my work and the way I approached other people. Um, and I've been associate dean for graduate studies. The graduate students especially appreciated me. As a matter of fact, they named a lecture in my honor when I left. Um, mm -hmm. That's been happening every year since I left. Um, but I made the decision because being an HIV researcher at Johns Hopkins is one thing, but doing that work at an HBCU in the Bible Belt was something totally different. It's just I felt that my work in this context, could be much more impactful. Not to mention the fact that when I thought about how I started my journey, mm -hmm. being at a place that's meant to address disparities, right. it just seemed to make sense. Uh, and it was a great time in terms of my son. Uh, Jay had just, uh, he was about to start middle school or leaving middle school, so the timing was right. right. We certainly would have moved, I don't think, if Jay had been in high school, but since he was between middle school and high school, we felt it was a good time to do it. Yeah. So that's that's basically it. Wow. Now, you've done a lot of work with HIV and AIDS research. Mm -hmm. What what was the impetus for you to start focusing on that disease specifically? Well, that's a interesting story as well. So at Oxford, I studied immunology and more specifically the basis for which T cells could recognize an infected cell. These are the glory days of immunology. I mean, everybody will tell you these days are the glory days, but I did my work in the true glory days of immunology. When they were just <laughs> discovering the foundations. Exactly, exactly. The T-cell receptor had not been identified. There are a lot of other big questions that had not been answered. But my thesis advisor, Andrew McMichael, his whole, I, his whole focus was on trying to understand how T-cells recognize infected cells. And at the time, we knew that in addition to seeing the viral epitope, the T cell must also recognize a histocompatibility antigen of its own. In other words, there were self and non-self being recognized at the same time. And there were two hypotheses at the time to explain it. One is there's a single receptor that binds a complex, 
or there's two receptors, one for the self and one for non-self. Right. So my thesis project was to prove that there was a single receptor that binds to both, and I had a great time uh, proving it. I didn't get the answer I was looking for, but I learned a lot about um, T-cells, immunology, and monoclonal antibodies especially. So when I came back to medical school, my intent was to become a transplant surgeon because immunology and transplant surgery go hand in hand. Right. As a matter of fact, a number of the major discoveries in immunology were made in the context of transplantation. So I, everything was going fine, but when I did my first rotation, one of the first patients I took care of was a young African-American woman who was HIV positive. She's just given birth to an HIV positive baby. And at the time, at least, there was absolutely nothing that we could do for them. Mm -hmm. And um, it was clear even back then there were signs that this was going to be a major challenge for immunology and for medicine. And when I thought about the impact I could have as a researcher versus a transplant surgeon, I came to the conclusion that my impact as a physician and researcher would probably be much better if I did HIV. So that's how it happened. This one patient, along with conversations with my department chair and doing my homework, mm -hmm. <laughs> convinced me that I should focus on HIV. But that one patient was had a profound impact. And looking back on on your career studying HIV, um, what do you think has been the major impact of your research on where we are today with the disease? Uh, I think the work that we did early on in the early 90s to late 90s, where we proved, I think without any doubt, that HIV as a particle incorporates host proteins and then delineating the fact that lipid rafts were the site at which the virus emerges, which explains so much of the biology. I think those two, two observations, two major observations and the work surrounding them, um, I think changed the way that some of the science approached it because when you prove that the virus does that, mm -hmm. your focus can't just be on the viral genes or the viral mechanisms. You have to look more at the host mechanisms right. as well. So I think, I think those were uh, the basis for, such as it is, my high profile in research. Mm -hmm. And it was probably the basis for getting the Pioneer Award, which was kind of the, one of the highlights of my whole career, getting that. Because mm -hmm. they're not easy to come by. And can you tell us more about this Pioneer Award? So the Pioneer Award is uh, given to, according to the NIH, uh, scientists of exceptional accomplishments and creativity, um, and what's different about it is that the application, first of all, is really short. It's only five pages. And instead of having it reviewed by a group of individuals, you know, just reviewing the application itself, you have to go and make a presentation to the review panel. Wow. Um, and a lot of the decision uh, that's made is based on your past record of achievements and whether or not you can convince this panel of experts that your idea is meritorious because you certainly can't convince them of that a two and a half million dollars should be invested in somebody based on a, a five-page proposal. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you know it's a very substantial grant, and I think it hopefully represented the fact that my standing as a scientist was pretty significant that I had made some contributions that were right. worthwhile. So related to that, 
Um, you, you kind of mentioned the idea that this award was based on creativity, yet many people often see research as dry or boring. But when it's actually mm-hmm. a place of innovation, you know, coming up with the question does take some creativity and yeah. deciding how to pursue it. Mm-hmm. As a graduate student, you discovered a protein that later became the basis of an FDA drug called Raptiva that is used to treat psoriasis. Yes. Tell us about, you know, your thought process and how you realized that this drug could have been helpful. Well, in my um, research with Dr. McMichael, Andrew asked me to do something which we now know is virtually impossible. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know it at the time. But when a virus infects a cell, the viral proteins get chopped up into small pieces we call peptides. We know this now. Mm-hmm. We didn't know this when I did my work. Those peptides then become associated with the MHC molecules on the surface of the cell. And that's how we can distinguish a virally infected cell from a non-infected cell because the viral peptides are sitting on the surface. So what Andrew asked me to do as a graduate student was to try to prove that the MHC molecules, the self molecules, are complexing with the viral proteins. We thought it was a protein-to-protein interaction, but as we know now, it's not really protein-protein. It's a peptide, a small peptide mm-hmm. that binds. My way of doing that was to try to make monoclonal antibodies that would only bind to cells if the cells were infected with influenza. Because if it only bound when influenza infection occurred, uh, it would probably mean that in order to get binding, you'd have to have both, both proteins there. Right. So it wouldn't bind to the virus on its own. It wouldn't bind to the cell on its own. It would only bind if both things were there, if it was an infected cell. And I literally made tens of thousands of monoclonal antibodies and screened them all, looking for the one, and not a single one oh, met the criteria. Uh-huh. <laughs> but this was like pre-computer, pre-automation. Yes. This is just hard work. It's just hard work. Lots of fusions and growing and tissue culture and killing mice and taking out spleens. It was... Anyway, um, some of the antibodies, though, when I tested them for functionality... And what I mean by that is, if the antibodies had the properties I thought they would have, they would block the recognition between the cytotoxic T cell and the infected cell. Mm-hmm. They would prevent that interaction. So when I did the functional studies, there were one or two antibodies that, despite the fact that they, they bound neither to the virus or to cells alone, they blocked their recognition. And those turned out to be antibodies against integrins which are major adhesion molecules that allow cells to talk to each other. Uh, But not only did they block the interaction with infected cells, they also block interactions of T cells with tumor cells. Mm -hmm. Uh, They block the functions of of, uh, T cells that mediate natural killing. So I thought, wow, this is is pretty cool, Right. right? And when we did the biochemical analysis, the proteins turned out to be the integrin, the major integrin, LFA1. And we were working in the human system. If we'd been a little bit more aggressive, we would have been the first to identify this major, major class of adhesion molecules. But a professor at uh, uh, Harvard, at the Dana-Farber Center, Timothy Springer, uh, found them in the mice a couple of months before we did. And it's, it turned out to be a major, major discovery. There's a huge class of these proteins. So I reasoned that if this antibody 
can immunosuppress uh, these T cells the way it does, it might have value as a treatment for autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. or any diseases where there's immune dysfunction. So I contacted the folk that, folks at Genentech, and we signed a license agreement with them because they also agreed that it might have potential. Uh, and uh, we did some additional studies to confirm that the activity was there. They humanized the antibody that I made, uh, gave it a different name. But Raptiva is really the antibody I made as a graduate student at Oxford after showing that it could suppress uh, T-cells the way it did. So, but, but when I saw what it could do, right. suppressing all these functions of T-cells and having learned about diseases of the immune system and autoimmune diseases, I thought, well, wow, this might be worth, worth uh, having a look to see if it could be a, a drug. So that's Very what happened. Cool. Very cool. Yes. I think I've heard you say that you consider yourself a scientist first. Yes. Even before a physician. Yes. before president yes. or manager or yes. anything. Yes, yes, yes. So I think you're in a unique position to give us your thoughts on why scientists should consider doing research at Meharry. Why scientists should consider doing research at Meharry? Yeah, why should they bring their labs like you brought your lab? Well, first of all, I do honestly believe that for certain diseases that we study that disproportionately impact uh, people of color or any disadvantaged people, because we now know that it's more about your zip code, perhaps sometimes, than it is the color of your skin or anything else. Um, but to the extent that you're studying something that falls in the bucket of a health inequity or health disparity or a disease that disproportionately affects one group or another, I think that that research being done at Meharry, where we have attracted so many individuals who want to have a part of that mission, mm-hmm. um, it certainly makes it to me at least, it made it more gratifying because I knew that the students I was training had the same mindset and they're going to go out and, and do similar work, right. right? So it's kind of like, I don't know, to me it's like amplifying the impact you can have by having people around you of a certain mindset. And that's not to say that you have to be African-American to study a disease that disproportionately affects us. No. What I'm actually saying is that I got into science and research because I wanted to find a way to help people, to make a difference in the lives of people, which is what a physician does as well. But the difference is a physician helps people one person at a time. Mm -hmm. If you do research and that research impacts the treatment of diseases, you can actually impact literally millions of people, right? But I think the the thing that uh, sets Meharry apart is the context in which the work is done and the, the, the the possibility of amplifying the the impact and the influence that can, that can have, mm-hmm. right? Um, and for me, I just felt that given how I started my journey, and also the fact that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, this was this just seemed to be the right place for me to come right. and do my work. And I think I've been uh, more than um, justified, or it's been confirmed to me that that was the right decision. Right. That's why I came back. Yeah. So. One of the initiatives you've been working on is focusing more on the issue of a pipeline. Yes. You know, so we started this podcast because we also wanted to highlight the idea that the number of African-American physicians are, is largely stagnated and maybe even dropping. That's right. So in your mind, when we hear the word pipeline, a lot of people use that word. So for you, what does that mean? Well, honestly, 
I think pipe, pipeline is an okay concept, but it doesn't really capture the, the magnitude and complexity of this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've often said that there's one thing that if it happened, I believe would totally change the, the situation, which is having more African-American men teaching in K-12. through I mean, that, right. that alone would change so many things, right? But that's not my domain. That's not my domain, right? Mm-hmm. But I honestly believe that if we could find a way to make that happen, some of these other issues would not, would not be a problem. So people say, well, you know, you didn't have any role models and you didn't have this, but look at what you did. Right. right? So maybe that's the exception that proves the rule. I don't, I don't know. What I'm saying is that it appears to be true, though, that when children see someone who looks like them who was able to achieve something, it's much easier to believe that you yourself can do the same thing. I think that's been part of the impact of the women's movement, that uh, young girls are now seeing women doing things that right. just a decade or two ago, they wouldn't have seen that. And the results are, well, they're obvious, right? Because I think now in medical school and some other professional schools, women have either equaled or now have eclipsed the number right. of men in those. And I think part of that's... Uh, so from my perspective, our challenge is to find a way to put in front of young black kids, especially the boys, folks who look like themselves, who are not athletes or entertainers, who, are, who appear to be fulfilled, successful, and happy as physicians, as dentists, as engineers, as teachers. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so, th- so I think that's our challenge is to make sure that we uh, expose children, I-, I would say all children, really to what the possibilities are. And that's why I embraced uh, adopting these two middle schools. Because right. I want my students... I call them my kids. I apologize. I know you guys are not kids, but that's cool. I, I, want, <laughs> I want my students to be in their presence so these middle schoolers can see students who look like them who are going to become dentists and researchers and doctors. So I, I do think there's a, a pipeline issue, but I think that the leaks in the pipeline uh, aren't necessarily the major problem. The major problem might be that in K-12, through Children don't actually see folks who look like them who are doing the kinds of things that we do. Right. And so that's why I think it's important for us at Meharry to have outreach to the, to, the, to the middle schools and elementary schools. And we're going to be very purposeful in doing that. That's exciting. Because you guys exciting. built a greenhouse recently. We did. Also. We did. And even, even as recently as a few months ago, one of the parents of a, of a child at uh, Haynes saw me in a grocery store or something and told me how much that day it meant to, That's awesome. to their child. Yes. That kind of makes you feel good that maybe you are having right. an impact. Um, and speaking of African-American youth, there's a big issue about police and gun violence. Do you think that those issues are public health issues? Oh, Yes. I do. Uh, I was just, I gave a talk uh, last week, and I talked about, uh, I call it, well, it's called, I I think I made this up, 
uncompensated emotional labor. Uh, it's the stress that I feel when I realize that my son, Jay, who's a great kid, he's bright, he works hard, he's a fantastic artist, he's just a great human being. But in a certain context, none of that would mean anything. Mm -hmm. He would just be a young black man whose life might not be valued the same as somebody else's and could be taken away just like that, right? That causes me and my wife, that causes real stress, right? And stress can impact one's health. We know this to be true. Uh, but when it happens on a daily basis, you know, when you read the news or you have conversations with people and you realize that not all of us are valued as others are, um, it just creates a kind of stress that is hard for me to understand because in my faith tradition, we believe that the good Lord created all of us to be equal and the same <laughs> and that uh, everybody is, should be offered grace and, and all this. Uh, so I, th I think it is a public health issue from the point of view that is creating unnecessary emotional stress. It's also creating tensions that can lead to a conflict that's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. But I do, I do think it's a public health issue, and I hope that at some point they're going to restore the funding for studying the underlying basis for gun violence. I think it was a big mistake to take that funding away, but hopefully it'll come back. And how do you think physicians and dentists can play a role beyond, other than just asking, is there a gun at home? Well, I think, and maybe it's appropriately the case, as you know, health professionals have not spoken out in terms of politics and social matters, maybe as much as they should, because, first of all, they're highly respected by the public, and maybe not speaking about politics and these things are part of why they're so well-respected. Uh, but I do have a fear that unless uh, people who are concerned in their silence, and I think, uh, I don't know who said it, but if you see something that's not right and you don't say anything, does that make you complicit? Mm -hmm. And I think we're rapidly approaching a time in our country where we can't afford to be silent. That if you are uh, a person concerned about the world and its future, maybe the time has come for us to end our silence and, and to speak out. That's why I was so proud and encouraged by the young people in Florida right. who uh, made it clear that they're not going to accept the status quo. Um, and the good news is that either some of them already are or in a year or two will be at the ballot right. voting and maybe we'll finally see, we'll see a change. Um, but, you know, it's something else I do worry about that we, we have a great country, but unless we find a way to deal with some of these issues that we face, uh, that might all be, that might all be in jeopardy. So, so it sounds like you are for physicians entering politics or, or even like participating with Black Lives Matters without worrying about if there would be any repercussions on their careers or where they would, you know, with administration, wherever, in whatever hospital or group they're part of? Well, I think some of this, quite honestly, is generational. And whether we like it or not, the folks in my generation, there's some things that have been acceptable to us that are just not going to be acceptable 
to the generations to come. And that gives me both hope and also gives me courage that maybe there's some things that I've been uh, hesitant to speak out about or get involved with that maybe I should. Now, of course, being Meharry's president and CEO, there are some things that I have to be careful about because, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that I might put out a disclaimer that these are my opinions and my words or my thoughts, they can be conflated with those of the institution. So you have to be careful that way. But I do think the time has come for more people who feel strongly about issues to not to remain silent, but to speak out about it. And as I said earlier, I do believe that whether we of my generation and older like it or not, change is coming because you can see the signs that these young people, uh, the young people, uh, are not going to accept some of the things that we find acceptable. And this just seems to be a weird time in our our, our history. Our history. Yeah. I mean, it just, I don't know. Well, I mean, sometimes they say you have to go one step back to go two steps sure. forward. That's true. Um, That's true. So shifting focus just a little bit, a hypothetical for you. Let's say we made you the czar of American healthcare. <laughs> you have complete and final say. Okay. What would your ideal healthcare system look like? And what does our current system need to do to get there? Well, the first thing would be that everybody would have access to care. You know, what I mean by that is our system is very expensive and over, over, overly so because care is now being done in settings where they should be done elsewhere. For example, when people go to the emergency room, it can cost 10 times as much to take care of that person as it would if they were in an ambulatory setting. But if people are not well-informed or have access to those kinds of clinic, clinics, low-acuity clinics, then of course they're going to go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why they do that is because they know if they go to the emergency room, they have to be Seen. taken care of, yeah. right? So we've got, to make, we've got to make it possible for those individuals to have access to care in an ambulatory setting where prevention and, and disease management can occur. That also means a larger role for advanced practitioners. Nurse practitioners, PAs, I think that they need to be more widely used because these are highly skilled individuals. They're very committed. Uh, they're very competent. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be taking care of some things like right now highly paid physicians are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it would look like universal access to primary care uh, for everybody in the country, then having primary care physicians who oversee the teams of individuals who are at the front line, uh, and making sure that that vaccines are widely available, that, and this would be really great if nutritious food could be made available. At schools. At the schools. Affordable prices. Exactly, affordable prices. We'd make it possible for people to, to get out and be active as opposed to being inactive. Uh, it do, appear- you, do you think physicians should be able to prescribe exercise? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Because uh, if you watch, if you see, look at what's happening in other countries where uh, the standard of living is going up, you can actually see that diseases that they never saw before mm-hmm. are now becoming, because of sedentary lifestyles, 
and much poorer tradition, uh, nutrition, etc. So there's a combination of things that we could do as a country that could both lower the cost of health care in this country, but also make our people much, much, much healthier. Because if you look at obesity and chronic diseases that require, uh, you know, constant uh, management, like, I don't know, hypertension and others, we can do a much better job. And the, the key to, to everything, though, is making sure everybody, everybody has access mm-hmm. to care. To care. The other thing I would do, again, if I'm the czar, <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs> is to make oral health care part of overall health care. Right. So that everybody would a- have access to all health providers. So that, w- that would be it. Because we now understand fully that the mouth is connected to the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. We seem to... We finally figured we that out. We finally figured that out. <laughs> that the mouth is Breaking connected the everyone. <laughs> to, the, to the rest of the body. So we, we probably need to make that a part of it as well. Um, um, so... All right, let's talk about my favorite subject, innovation. The 150th anniversary of Meharry is less than 10 years away, yes. 2026. Yes. You started various initiatives like the Data Science Center, mm-hmm. and you've done a big push on precision medicine. Mm-hmm. What will it take to get the entire college moving synchronously towards being the health innovation leader you envision? Well... There's, I call them foundational things that we need to do. That is building a foundation on which to build this amazing Amahari. So there's technology. Our, our technology is a bit outdated. It needs to be uh, updated. Our pipes are, are small. We need bigger pipes. Our bandwidth is, is not sufficient to allow us to have the educational kinds of reforms I'd like because we need to change our approach to teaching from the sage on the stage to flexible teaching and active learning and let the students teach each other, make use of technology, all those things. We also need to, to uh, make full use of the power of data and data analytics uh, because I think that solving some of the biggest problems that humans face, whether it's climate, energy, food, health, is going to involve having massive data sets that we can analyze and make sense of. And I want to make sure that Meharry is a part of that, that process because otherwise uh, the people that we care about may not be able to fully take advantage of all this amazing new knowledge we're going to have. And I think that's a part of it. But also there's a cultural shift that we need to make where it's the expectation that everyone on the campus could have an idea that could transform us in some way. What that means is that silos have to go, right? And I've worked really hard, and it may not be apparent that I'm working hard on this, but I'm trying my best to have silos be minimized, and that whether you are in, I don't know, the School of Dentistry, or School of Graduate Studies, or Medicine, or whatever, that the ideas can flow freely across those units, and whatever the best ideas are, they'll bubble to the top, and we can all benefit right. from them, Right. To me, that would be an incredible environment to be in, whether you're a student or faculty or staff member. And it's especially important for me to, for the staff members to feel like they're a part of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. That every idea, every contribution is valued and celebrated in some way. And that's really what I'd like to see. To me, that's what this is really about. It's not about the buildings we're going to build or the programs we're going to create. It's going to be about the environment we create. Right, the culture is exactly. the most important. Exactly. And one of the things I've appreciated about Meharry since I've been here is the fact that people will listen if you have an idea. 
you know, and so if you have any issue, if you just bring an idea, people will hear you out. Yes. Um, and so I think that's a cool part. You know, I'm really excited about everything that's happening. I'm really excited about preserving the core of who we are, that mission that we all, that drew us all here, but doing it in a way that's even more impactful. Uh, and that's why I'm having a focus on the, having a global reach because there's some people in other places that have the same challenges we do. We can learn from them. They can learn from us. But more importantly, from my students, I want all of them, as you know, you heard me say, all who wanted to have a global experience. To have Because you can't, I don't think you can go to another place on this planet if you're a U.S. citizen and come back the same person. Exactly. You, you just can't. You just can't. To the extent that I'm able to offer or provide or help provide opportunities for for my students to have global uh, experience and connections, that's what we're we're determined to do. And really quickly, can you just name some of the countries that we are partnering? So we're having very serious conversations with China. As a matter of fact, if all goes well, there might be some a, a delegation of Chinese students on our campus this summer. We just had the Vice Chancellor of the University of Zambia here yesterday to uh, finalize the de- details of this great partnership we're going to have with them. And in, as a matter of fact, in Zambia, they're going to be building a, a collaboration house, is what they call it, so that when our students and our faculty go there, they'll have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. And we're doing this in conjunction with my colleagues at, at Morehouse. So that's another example. I'm also having conversations with my former colleagues at Oxford for research rotations there at the University of Oxford. And we have conversations happening now with Brazil, uh, and I have a couple of others in the pipeline. So I'm, I'm determined <laughs> that these partnerships will allow us to do to achieve that goal. Uh, and I just believe that partnerships are the way that we're going to uh, have the global reach that we want, but also to give the opportunities mm-hmm. to, to the students. Sounds really great. I feel like I, I'm graduating too early. Well, huh? you know, <laughs> you'll be able to you'll be able to to help us, but. As I told some of the alums last night at the event, we're trying to make sure that as each year goes by, they'll be more and more proud of the fact that they're Meharry alum. Right. And hopefully they'll want to help us in this transformation that we're trying to do. Awesome. Um, so what is your philosophy on education and what makes a good teacher? Well, my philosophy is to pose questions to my students that will challenge them and guide them in their own discovery. The teachers I value the most, that's what they did for me. Mm-hmm. They posed questions that challenged me, and in trying to find those answers, actually I learned a lot more than if I had spent that time in some other approach. So I think a really good teacher will ask a question that will trigger the curiosity and motivate a student to go and learn. As us graduating seniors um, move on, um, what should we be aware of about the world outside of this nurturing Meharry bubble? What I would actually say is that you should leave being confident that with a combination of what you brought to us, because we, you, you're all really remarkable human beings in the first place, coupled with all the things that you learned on your own and from your experiences here, that there should be full confidence that you're ready to deal with whatever comes in before you. And it's that confidence, I believe, that makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Because as I shared with you earlier, once I achieved that first thing, the confidence to know that I could do all the other things was never an issue. Right. 
And when I talk to young people, I tell them about the, there are three things I talk about. Passion, giving yourself permission to do the thing you love doing. Everybody should have that right to make that choice. The other one is preparation. Because when you prepare and you take the time to earnestly prepare, that's where confidence comes in. And when you're confident, passionate, and prepared, nothing can stop you. That's, that's, there you go. So what does leadership mean to you? <laughs> leadership means service. My job is to facilitate the success of others. And what that means is when I sit in this, this chair, it's not about James Hildreth anymore. It's about Meharry Medical College. And everything I do, if I, I approach the job correctly, is to serve the needs of the institution and all the people who are part of it. So from my point of view, leaders are servants, and their job is to facilitate the success and growth of the people around them. Um, and how does one develop into a better leader? By listening and by learning. Because I think I shared with you before that, and I just thank my mother for this wonderful gift of knowing that everything that you experience and every person that you meet can teach you something. But you got to be open to what those lessons are. And uh, I know for a fact that there are some leaders in uh, large industries who look for people who've tried some things and failed, but they want to make sure that those individuals learn something from those failings. Right. And so for me, that's, that's what I try to do. I try to listen. I try to learn. I try to do that every single day. On a related note, why did you want to become president of Meharry, knowing all the responsibility that entailed? <laughs> like, what was like, all right, I can do that, or, or what would drive someone well, to make that choice for themselves? Clearly, I'd never been a president before, but I've been around chancellors and presidents, and maybe unspinocks to the people, other people in the room. I'm listening, and I'm learning. And I'm thinking about how would, how would I deal with that situation? What would I do differently? So you can actually learn, again, by watching what is happening around you. But I, I decided that as president of Meharry, hopefully I could take an institution that from some aspects had just been surviving and look at what it's accomplished by just surviving. Mm -hmm. If we could change that and make it a thriving institution, the impact would just be... It would be amazing, right. right? So if I can be just a small part of that, and this is my last job, wouldn't that be a great way to end one's career? Yeah. That's why I decided to come back. That's awesome. Would you change anything about your career looking back on it? I don't think so. I mean, the other gift that my mother gave me was to honestly believe and accept that I wouldn't want to be anybody else or anything else other than who and what I am. And I think that's part of why I can be calm and I'm not, I don't have emotional swings like some people think I should have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't yell at people. I don't swear. I don't do any of those things because to me, they're not necessary. Um, it's not that I don't have emotions and I don't have highs and lows. But I think if you're a leader, your job is to make sure that the situation can be managed and you have to be calm. And the last thing I'll say is that people have often commented on my, what they perceive as my humility. Is that, that wrong? The joke is, <laughs> the joke is on them because my humility is really kind of a form of arrogance. Because when you know that your destiny is in the hands of the Creator, and when you really know that, mm -hmm. there's no reason to be anything other than 
humble, right? And so I think that I enjoy hearing people say, you're so humble, because what they really don't know is, it's really not. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really not, <laughs> because when you, when you know that you're, you're, you're in good hands. good hands, then I don't need to beat up anybody over what I've done or what I've not done or whatever. Right. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, to listen and make sure I'm doing my part. Could you see yourself doing anything else? Yes. What's your alternative careers? Carpenter. Carpenter? It's that. Because you said your uncles worked in that, and you, so I'm a master carpenter. Oh wow! Anything you've built recently, or? Well, uh, when my team found out, my vice president found out that I, I'm a carpenter, and that my compound miter saw was falling apart, they got me a new. Wow. Compound sliding miter saw for my birthday. And so I've actually put up chair rail in the house. I've been doing all kinds of crazy projects that let me make maximum use of my new toy. That's cool. And, uh, for example, when 9-11 happened, when tragedies strike, people go to their, the things that bring them some comfort. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I drove to Home Depot. I bought lots of lumber and supplies in my pickup truck, came back, and I put an office studio over in my garage. Whoa. Uh, I did it all myself, you know. That's just one of the projects. I've done lots of projects. How long did it take you to, you know, develop this craft? Well, keep in mind that after my father died when I was 11, my uncle started teaching me things. And I found I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And so I've taken courses. Uh, for example, at Harvard, uh, I built walls for people because they give you these big open suites for four students. There's no privacy. And as long as you didn't penetrate the floor or the ceiling, uh-huh. they will let you do anything you want. Oh, wow. So I devised this system based on friction where I could put up a wall, put a door in the wall. And as a matter of fact, I'm on the, I'm the Harvard Board of Overseers now. And recently I was there and I went into Leverett, Leverett Hall. And I think some of the walls I built back in 1977 or 8 are still standing. Oh, wow. Don't let Donald Trump hear that you're a master of all <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but I would actually find being a, a tradesman very satisfying. Oh. And so I still do that as often. I build something as often as I can. That's the way I find relief. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time today. This was, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. This episode was produced by Bassam Zahid. Special thanks to our advisors, Lucius Patanod, Kenneth Morris, and Shirlene Fry from the Office of Communications and Marketing. Thanks to Dr. Dexter Samuels from the Office of Student Affairs and Mr. Patrick Johnson of Institutional Advancement. Music by Lee Rosevier. I'm going for a coffee. Available on freemusicarchive.org.